We're doing things a little differently this week, but I think you're really going to love it. I sat down for an interview with Bob Proctor at his studio in Toronto, Canada. He is a leader in the personal and professional development industry. Welcome to Possibilities with me, Hina Khan. I've been a coach and psychotherapist for well over a decade. And after working with hundreds of clients, here is what I've come to know. The only thing holding us back from a larger, more expansive life is our mindset. I'm going to help you break through your mental barriers and unlock infinite possibilities. I first met Bob, gosh, it's got to be about six years ago now. I was doing some research and looking for my next mentor, and that's when I came across his work. I'd heard about him before, and I kind of thought there's no way he could still be working because, quite frankly, he's got to be kind of old. But I was surprised to learn that he was, in fact, still working. So I filled out a form asking for more info. I had no idea where it would lead. Well, it turns out it led me to a hotel lobby to meet Bob himself. He happened to be doing an event in Toronto that weekend. Now, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just told that if I came to the event, I might have a chance to meet Bob. So I was ready to take that chance, and I went. Well, long story short, I met him. He became my mentor. But not only that, we also became fast friends. The past few weeks on the show, we've really been talking about some big ideas, visualization, gratitude and imagination. These are things that Bob utilizes every single day. He was born July 5th, 1934, and grew up in the middle of the Depression. He only had one month of high school education, so at that time, his job options were pretty slim. And to be honest, he had no sense of direction for his life. But he caught a break when he was hired as a firefighter at his local station. It was a dream job. It offered a decent pay, stability, flexibility, and quite frankly, he was content. Then he met Ray Stanford, a businessman. I think Ray saw something in everybody. And I I think if he liked you, he would help you. Ray introduced him to the book, Think and Grow Rich, written by Napoleon Hill. The book broke down the science of achievement by interviewing the wealthiest people at the time. He, he suggested, he said, why don't you change the results you're getting? Well, I didn't know I could. Like, I, truly, I never even thought of changing results. I'd wake up and I'd go to work and, yeah. you know. Um, the idea of results and changing results, happiness, health, well, that never entered my mind. But he said, listen, he said, I'm happy, healthy, wealthy. You're unhappy, sick, and broke. He's my way works yours then. Why don't you do exactly what I tell you? Now, I had never done what anybody told me. I was 26. Um, <laughs> I just would not follow direction. I hated discipline. And for some strange reason, I decided I would do what this man told me. And what he did when he did that, or when when I decided I would do that, 
I learned a great secret of life. The secret was that to have success, you had to work in harmony with universal laws. And in doing so, a high school dropout working at a fire station could create the life he always wanted. So he created a goal for himself to make $25,000 a year. Remember, this is in the 60s, so that's a lot of money. He went out on a whim and created a side business cleaning floors to make more money. Then he took a huge risk. He quit his job at the fire station and committed full-time to his goals. Since then, he's impacted millions of people with his books, programs, and live events. In fact, he dedicates his first best-selling book, You Were Born Rich, to his wife, Linda. And that's where we'll start the interview, with the story of how that book came to be. This book is a bestseller times, you know, over and over again. And it's interesting because I think some people don't know the backstory of this book. I love this. You are in a taxi in Toronto. Mm -hmm. You've written out with a pen the manuscript for the book. You come home. Linda's there. You're talking to Linda about it. And you reach reach into your folder to show it to her. But it's not there. Mm -hmm. Linda starts panicking. She is going through the yellow pages, which, by the way, if you're too young, that's what we called a phone book. (laughs) She is going through the yellow pages, phoning every taxi company to find this. Mm -hmm. But she says, what strikes her is how calm Mm -hmm. you are. And you say, Linda, I guess that wasn't meant to be the book. There's a better version of that. Like, if it's 50 feet from that wall to that wall, it has to be 50 feet from that wall to that wall. They're equal and opposite. It's all governed by law. So when something bad happens, I uh, I just sort of calm down and think, There's, if this is real bad, it's real good. I had written the whole thing by hand. I didn't type. And paper swells. I had a folder. It was about that thick. I didn't have my name on it, Nothing. I left it in the back of a taxi. I couldn't tell you the color of the taxi, the name of the taxi, nothing. So, I mean, it was gone. I just thought there's some reason, you know. The book probably wasn't any good. So I started writing it again. But you see, Bob, when people are hearing this, they're thinking, they can't even wrap their head around that kind of calmness of mind, that Mm. kind of demeanor. So this comes from awareness, your ability to respond? It does. Listen, if you're not calm, you're tied up in a knot, you you solve nothing. Mm. Energy flows to and through us. When we're uptight, it's like putting a kink in a garden hose and wonder why the water doesn't flow freely. Yeah. If you want the energy to flow freely through you and get good results, you've got to be calm. So... The trick is, don't let anything outside really upset you. Now, there's another side to this. If you let something outside get you excited, Mm -hmm. you're going to let something outside get you depressed. Mm. Because you're reacting to what's going on outside. So something really good happens, you get excited. Something bad happens, you're going to get depressed. Mm -hmm. That's because you're letting the outside control you. I don't think you should get excited about anything. I think you should get enthused about it. See... Excitement has a polar opposite, and it's depressed. Mm -hmm. 
Enthusiasm doesn't have a polar opposite. Enthusiasm is in God. It comes from the Latin entheos, in God. And it just is. Just is. Nothing good and bad just is. Everything just is in truth. You know? So it's a bit of a philosophy you got to get into, and then you train yourself to think and live that way. You know what you just made me think of? When you talked about how you're tied in a knot and you're not allowing the energy to flow, it reminds me of when you're looking for your keys. You've got to get out the door and you're looking for your keys and you're all knotted up, panic. stressed. It's panic. It's panic. And nothing happens. You don't find them. No, you don't find them at all until when you, you calm, calm down. down. Then you start to find them. Then you start to find them. Yeah. I love what um, Sandy writes here in the introduction. Sandy, your business partner. She says this in the book. She says, by letting the ideas in this book fill your consciousness, your life will instantly become a fascinating journey. But that journey is not going to begin as if you're walking through a beautiful flower garden. When you lay this book down, you'll be confronted by construction sites, detours, and potholes. In other words, a respectable amount of resistance from virtually everyone you know. That's I'm speaking true. from experience, she says. Did that happen to you when you got into this material? Oh, yes. Really? Absolutely. That shirt did. I was so fascinated with it, though, I couldn't stop listening to it or reading it. See, I, got, I, was, only, I was only reading this for a short time, and then I found where Earl Nightingale, a broadcaster in uh, Chicago, a radio broadcaster, guy had such a great voice. He had condensed this book and narrated it on a record. And so I would drive around with a battery-operated record player um, playing the record. I was, I was absolutely fascinated with the information. Now, keep in mind, I was born during the Depression in 1934, yeah. right in the heart of the Depression. Um, when I'm five, six years old, just starting school, the whole world went to war. So everything's rationed. Um, fathers are all gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, mother's working in war plant. Grandmother's trying to raise three of us. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of attention given to anybody. It was not a good time. Food was rationed. Everything was rationed. So I grew up, lack and limitation was sort of the order of the day for everybody. And everybody lived that way. I mean, so it wasn't that we were just bad off and nobody else was. And when I started to listen to this, the idea you could have whatever you want that you've got these mental faculties if you start using them, you know, that you're God's highest form of creation. And uh, I don't mean that from a religious perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about from today, living today. Mm-hmm. Um, I just never lost my fascination for it. I study it every day. It makes me think like it spoke to your soul, like it spoke oh, it to did. something for deep sure it inside did. of you. Absolutely, it did. You see, I think we are a soul. We don't have one, we mm. are one. And I believe our spiritual DNA is perfect. There's perfection within every one of us. Mm-hmm. And that perfection is seeking expression with and through us. That's why you're always going to want something. That's why you'll never be satisfied. If you run, you want to run faster. If you jump, you want to jump higher. If you sell, you want to sell more. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to want to do it better. And that is because the essence of what's inside of your spirit is always for expansion and fuller expression. So you want to do it bigger, you want to do it better, faster. 
But here's what's remarkable to me as you're describing the environment that you grew up in, which was all around you. And as mm. we know, so you, it's through your five senses. Mm -hmm. You're seeing, hearing, tasting, smell, and touching this environment. You're in it. You're hearing this material that's touching your soul. You're hearing this material. Like it had to be such a big pull when everything around you is saying, there is no way that can be possible. Well, that's true. But that's one of the things he says in the book. Okay, so you heard it enough he said, times. You know, he said, if you want to win and you, want, and you follow other people, yeah. he said, if you see a large group of people going one way and one or two going the other way, follow the one or two. Wow. The others have never known where they're going to go. Ninety-some percent of the population struggle all the way through life. Ooh. School doesn't teach us how to take control of our life. I don't care where you go, and I don't care how long you go or how far you go in school. It does not teach us how to control ourself. Mm -hmm. We've got to get involved with self, really understand who we are. Mm -hmm. Everything, every time you would caution you, you look around, you see it, it's all around you. Right. Everybody's telling you, you're crazy, you can't do that. You know? And when I quit the fire department, I quit the fire department going clean offices. Everybody thought I'd really out of my mind. In fact, I was really questioning myself at one point um, because I was the second person since 1934 to quit the fire department. No one quit that job and they couldn't fire you. I mean, it was like having a pension and you only worked half the time, you know, and when you were working at night, you'd sleep. I mean, it was like being retired. I got into that and I thought, I can't stay here because they were sitting around doing nothing, wanting to play cards or play darts. And I'm thinking, I know I gotta do something, I gotta do something. So I eventually quit. And I went and started cleaning offices. Yeah. And you hired some of those oh, I firefighters. Hired, I had about 10% of them working for me at one time. You see, I everybody thought I was quitting to go and clean offices. Yeah. But I was quitting to go and build a company. Mm. And I didn't have any formal education. I didn't have any business experience. So everybody thought, well, what makes you think you can build a company? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what it made me think it, but I could think it, you see? I went from earning 4000 a year to 14500 a month in a year. Now get this for a minute. The fire chief of East York at that time was earning $11,200 a year. A first-class fireman was earning $4,000 a year. There was only one chief. Now there was a couple of district chiefs, but the chief, the fire chief, $11,200 a year. I got to a point where I was earning $14,500 a month. I mean, it was just, it was an unreal change. You talk about quantum leaps. And it just kept growing. If I could see it in my mind, like the book was telling me, if you can see it in your mind, you can hold it in your hand. In other words, if you can get the picture, then you can do it. See, we're creative beings. That's how everything starts. Everything. These cameras, the microphones, the lights, everything started out as a picture mm -hmm. in somebody's mind. Well, I was starting to understand this because I was listening to it all day long as I was driving around I was listening to the records. And I thought, if I can get the picture, then I can go and do it. And so that's what I would do. And so, Bob, when you were even making more than the fire chief, more in a month than he would make in a year, were you still scared was, to quit? 
I was still in the fire. Absolutely, I was scared to quit. Yeah. Even when you were seeing yeah. that you were making the money? Even when I was, you see, conditioning's a funny thing. I know. It really is. It's insidious. Yes. I was breaking a paradigm. I was going against my conditioned way of thinking. Your mind is conditioned. Everybody's mind is conditioned. It's conditioned first genetically and then environmentally. So we're conditioned to believe there's security in a job. Well, that is absurd. There's no such thing as security in a job. If you think there's security in a job, you lose your job, you're going to be totally demoralized because you lost everything. Security is an inside thing. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't got it there, you haven't got it. Well, I was starting to develop this feeling of security. Now, still quitting, I was scared, but I quit. I gave a month's notice. I didn't have to give a month's notice. I only had to give two weeks. The second I walked out the door, I knew I'd done the right thing. Mm. But I had to walk out the door. So you got to do it. I know. It's like we want to know we've done the right thing before we walk, walk out the door. Yeah. We, want, we want a prediction. We want to know it's going to be okay. And even as you said that, Bob, about security, I can tell you, I was talking to someone the other day. Even now, all these years later, people will still have a very difficult time accepting what you have just said, oh, that their well, security does not, not come from their job. But they have benefits. They have a pension. Yeah, well... They can buy the benefits. I know. And um, see, I'm I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Yeah. You know, and I think the more free you become, the more of an entrepreneur you become. Yeah. I've got to play my own game. Yeah. And uh, I know there's no limit to what I can do, so I just keep doing it. You know, you keep building the picture. And you help as many other people as you can build the same picture, do the same thing. You know, I remember you saying that we're here in your studio and there was a contractor that was obviously working on the studio and he looked at you and he was like, how old are you? And how much is this going to cost? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know, yeah. you've got pictures, you've got things to do. We were, um, I think we built it three years ago. Yeah. Um. And I was 83, and somebody said, you're building a studio and you're 83? If you let your age, your gender, your education, your bank account, anything control your thinking, you're in a little prison of your own making. Yeah. And um, um, that's not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. It's just a bad place to be. You know, Bob, I, I'm thinking about when you started to make money, and because this is so interesting, because we all do this. So I'd love to hear more about this from you. You start to make money, so you buy a nice car. Mm. But I guess there was still a little bit of disparity in your self-image and the car, because oh. you would park it far away from your meeting. No question about it. Listen, when I worked in a gas station, there was a guy, Mr. DeVere. He would come in, and he'd park this great big long Cadillac by the pumps. Yeah. We'd be working inside, working on a car, and we'd see the car out there. When we saw that car there, the drill was you go, you fill the car up with gas, you check the tires, you empty the ashtray, you clean the windows, you check the oil, and then you go in the glove compartment and right against the wall of the glove compartment is a credit card. You go in and run the credit card, put it back in the, in the glove compartment, and then go back to work. This guy put more gas in the car. I was wondering how he got the money to put the gas in the car because he was forever filling it up. How he bought the car never entered my mind. 
But I always wanted a Cadillac because of that. Really? And I had enough money in the bank to buy four or five Cadillacs. And I went downtown, and I went in the Cadillac showroom, and as soon as the salesperson started to come over toward me, I'd get out of there. And one day I went in, and the guy got over to me, he says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm going to buy this. Oh, okay. And uh, he said, you want to know the price? Well, it's okay. You know. And so he said, well, how are you going to buy I said, I'll give you a check. He said, okay. This guy was very skeptical. <laughs> and I said, can I take it with me? Well, no, we're going to have to service the car. He said, <laughs> what he didn't say is we're going to make sure this check isn't going to bounce all over the city. And uh, I got the car. I was afraid to let anybody see me in it. Yeah. I'd park it around the corner. And if I saw you walking down the street and I was driving, I would hide so that you wouldn't see me driving oh. the car. Uh, my self-image didn't fit in that car. Although I wanted the car, my self-image wouldn't fit in. Now I changed that because I got when I recognized what was going on, um, I started to understand self-image, and I changed it. You know, I think a lo I think many of us still worry about that. Worry about what other people will think. Oh well, that's a, that's another thing too. You know, that it's a spin-off of that. Terry Whitaker wrote a book. Mm. It's titled "What You Think of Me Is None of My Business," mm -hmm. and it's so true. We spend too much time worrying about what someone else thinks. And I think that comes from when we're little kids, our parents would say, what would the neighbors think? Right. Uh, I found out they don't. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbors don't think. we got to quit worrying about what somebody else thinks. Yeah. What we got to be concerned with is what we think. Yes. Because what we think is controlling our life, you know. And it's so interesting because worrying about what people think keeps us small. It keeps us from not doing certain things Absolutely. because we're worried about how we'll be perceived. So even our successes, we don't mm -hmm. want to share it. We don't want to come across as bragging or who do we think we are mm -hmm. showing up in that Cadillac, Mr. Proctor. Yeah. Um, you know what I love, Bob? I love when we go to your events. And, and if you haven't been to an event, you've got to get to one. This is what you're going to notice is, Bob, at your events, you have people of all different races, all different ages, different religions. You have devout Muslims, devout Jews, Christians, people that are not religious. They are religious. I have not seen that from any other event I've been to with other speakers in your space. Why do you, you think say that they is? all have one thing in common? They're people. Yeah. Yes, they do have one thing in you common, see, they're people. But what I, is it about you? Well, I believe we're all the same. Mm. People are not born Christians. They're born. And Christian is a belief system. Right. They adopt from the parents or the Jew or the Muslim. Um, I think we should set all that stuff aside and look at the potential that we've got and then how to develop that potential, how to alter that subconscious conditioning, the paradigm, mm -hmm. how to put a new one in. Mm -hmm. See, we've, what we've, we've really got a program in our subconscious mind. It's like our biocomputer. And this program uh, was put there by somebody else. So the people that wrote the code for the program that's literally controlling our life had no idea what the hell they were doing. Mm. They really didn't know much. It's been passed down from great-grandparents to grandparents, you know, and down. And that's how we're conditioned as children. So it's genetic 
you know, there's a particle energy from mom and a particle from dad come together. That forms the nucleus of you. And that keeps an attractive force going. And 280 days later, you make your debut on the planet. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of conditioning going on there. Yeah. All that DNA, it's all there. Every idea that they believe is built right into the genes, mm -hmm. our belief system. And it's our belief system that controls us. Now, when we start to question some of our beliefs, that's when our life starts to change. Like the belief, well, <laughs> I'll give you a good one that yeah. we're operating with. Women are not as valuable as men. Mm -hmm. And you'd say, God, this is 2020. That, mm -hmm. that idea's gone long ago. Not on the paycheck, it isn't. You're right. You're still, I think a woman gets about 70% of what a man gets. Mm -hmm. It's absurd. That's why you find so many women now becoming entrepreneurs and very successful ones too. Well, look at your company. Our company's run by women, really. Yeah. So we get this conditioning. We're in the, in the culture, in the environment that we're brought up in. And what I think happens, what I've started to realize is that we start to accept things that are fa as fact that are opinion, that oh, are beliefs, that sure. can be changed. Well, another thing, look at it this way. We go to school, we read the book, we answer questions on the content of the book that the teacher puts together. Mm -hmm. And if we get a certain mark, we pass. So you've got people going out into the world, they pass their exams, they've got excellent grades, they've got degrees, and they're failing miserably. Why? Mm -hmm. because they've never really understood and applied the information that's in the book. What they got wasn't an education at all. They gathered information. They gathered knowledge. Knowledge on its own is no good. If knowledge was valuable, all librarians would be <laughs> multi-zillionaires. Knowledge is not valuable. Knowledge has to be organized and then intelligently directed. And that's what we've done at the Proctor Gallagher Institute. You know, we've organized knowledge and we intelligently direct it. I feel like we just have to let people take this in. This is huge. This is huge because people feel like they have to forever gather information. They don't know enough to start anything. I don't know enough. I have to research this. I have to research that. Oh, and you see people going back to school to get another degree because yeah. they have trouble getting a job. And what you said about what you do here at the Proctor Gallagher Institute, I, you know, as you know, my background is in psychotherapy. And what I tell people is I don't think I have found anything better than the Thinking Into Results program personally in a way to facilitate change at that subconscious level, have a transformation, but mm -hmm. in a shorter amount of time. Like I love people, but I don't need to be with them for years. They may mm -hmm. not want to be with me for years. Um, and this is what I love about it is that you can have that transformation, but it's because it's exactly what you just said. It's organized. It's organized and it's intelligently organized directed. And intelligently directed. You've touched millions of lives. Mm. You know, Bob, I see people come up at events to you and I see how you take in and accept their they, There's so mm. much gratitude always pouring out mm. to you. But one thing you've told anybody that works with you and you caution us on is don't drink your own bath water, which is kind of gross. But what do you mean by that? Listen, we, uh, we really do help people. Yeah. There's no question about it. But we don't help everybody. Mm. The person has to take it and use the information. 
Now, if they're the ones that's taking and using it, they got to get credit for it. We can't take credit for it. We'll take credit for putting the information together. But we can't take credit for the change that's taken place in them. Now, they haven't learned that yet, so they write us beautiful letters, and uh, you've done so much for me. I had a mentor way back. He said, Bob, don't read that stuff. Don't even read the letters. I may read one periodically if somebody asks me to read one, but I really don't pay any attention to that because I know they don't know. I did not change them. I don't deserve the credit for that. They deserve the credit for that. They just haven't learned that yet. I deserve the credit for the change I've made in me. Mm -hmm. You deserve the credit for the change you've made in you. Mm -hmm. You see? And they don't understand that in the beginning. And what's the danger when we start to believe that, oh, we oh, have wow. made the change in you're that getting, person? You're getting in trouble. Yeah. You're in serious trouble. I think that's when you're on your way out of business. Really? Yeah. 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 Um, you recently did something that you've never done before. Mm. You were an actor in a movie. I was. <laughs> and here is what one of the producers, Kelly Pascuzzi, said about you on set. Bob was the most interested one on set. He obviously understands the value of specialized knowledge. So he made it a priority to connect with our director and actors prior to his scene because, because he had such a sincere interest to understand everyone's roles and also to see what he could learn. He did share with me though that he did hit the terror barrier but didn't stay there very long. Some people, Bob, don't know what the terror barrier is. Can you explain what that is and how that showed up in that situation for you? It's an emotional wall I think you hit when you go to do something you've never done before. Mm -hmm. That you consider fairly difficult to do. You hit, you get scared and you want to back away. Yeah. And you're stepping out of your comfort zone really. And if you're not doing that, you're not growing. So the terror barrier is actually an indication you're growing. But it's a scary situation, yeah. I was a priest <laughs> in the movie, yeah. What was it like, Bob? I mean, you were uh, Well, there's a year, funny right? story on yeah. this. I got there, and um, they had me in this priest's robe. And it's, it was an old church in uh, Louisiana down in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And... It was an interesting old building. And so I was asking this old guy that was in the church questions, and he knew all about the church. He was telling me all about it. And it was really interesting. Well, Leslie Uggams, the singer, yeah. she was in the movie. And her husband was there with her, who was an Australian, nice guy. And he was asked, he started, a, like I had never met him, he didn't know me. He was asking me questions about the church, and I was telling him all about it. He thought I was the priest of the church. I mean, he really thought I was the authentic priest. Well, we went out for dinner that oh night yeah. with Leslie and her husband. And he was shocked when he found out I wasn't the priest. <laughs> I was just the actor priest, yeah. yeah. It was a great experience. I'll, I'll probably do it again. Would you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll do it again. Yeah, yeah. I love that. He sees it in his mind, so it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bob, one of the things many times people say, and you've heard this countless times, I want to teach this to my children. I want to teach them how to mm. think. I want to, you know, teach this material to them. And I always think, I think, well, the best way to teach it is to be it, is Absolutely. to live it. 
And it, this makes me think of another story with your um, grandson. And your grandson, I just love this story. He was nine when he wrote this. He says, when I was eight, my grandma was in the hospital. I was very sad because she was very sick. My sisters and I stayed at my grandpa and grandma's Linda's house for a few days because my dad and mom wanted to be with her. I was cuddling with grandpa on the couch and he was watching golf. I was pretty upset, so he stopped watching golf and talked to me. He asked me to tell him how I was feeling. He told me to stop thinking about her sick in the hospital. He said to think of all the good times that I had with her. He asked me questions about all the fun times I had with my grandma, and remembering those times made me smile. Grandpa taught me not to think about all the negative things, and that I should only think of positive things. Sometimes it's hard, but there are always ways to do that. And when you do, you feel good. I think that's how you teach it, isn't it? Yeah, I'm asked that all the time. And the best way to teach it is to live it, do it. Yeah. You know, that your kids are following your pattern. Mm -hmm. They really are, whether you like it or not. And that's kind of scary sometimes. You know, there's a pattern and kids get in that pattern. So the best way to uh, teach this information to the kids is to live it. You're right. Yeah, we're living this right now, thanks to you, Bob. So my oldest, who's 12, was like, I'd like to have a dog. And I was like, no, like we've already got a dog. I, I was saying no. And he said, okay. So he just started writing. And he'd say, just wake me up in the morning. So I'd wake him up in the morning. He goes, I want to wake me up earlier than normal. And I said, okay. And he would write his goal. <laughs> I was like, damn it. Who's teaching you this stuff? He would write his goal. He would visualize it. He would go on Amazon and look at dog beds. And then that energy gets me involved. And now I'm looking for dogs. Well, he just adopted his dog. Uh, it's a Jack Russell Chihuahua mix. Gorgeous little one named Tulip, um, who mm -hmm. was actually from Texas, mm -hmm. from the States on the streets. And they're falling in love as we speak. But that is it. He sees what we do. And he just applied it and he completely right. ignored us. Yeah. And we started the conversation with what 10-year-old Bob would think of the life you've created. If you could meet your 10-year-old self, what advice would you give him? Do you know, I've thought of that in a different manner mm -hmm. for a long time, probably none. Really? I wouldn't want to change anything that I've done. I, um, I'm very effective at this. I know I'm very effective at it. And that is because I changed so much. There was such an enormous change took place in my life. So when I see a person that's struggling or having a tough time, or maybe they got a poor self-image or something, I know exactly where they're at, so I know how to help them. Because I've been there. And they may not know I've been there, but our conversation will work. So I don't think I'd really change anything. I wouldn't, I, I really, I've had a great life and I plan to keep going. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I want it to be bigger and better. That was an interview with the legend, Bob Proctor. As we end the episode today, I want you to think of teachers mentors, role models that you are grateful for. 
And if you want to hear the full interview with Bob Proctor, you can go to my YouTube channel, Hinnicon Coaching. If you enjoyed this interview, please let me know. Your feedback helps us make a better show. And as always, if you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. I'll meet you here next time on Possibilities. This episode was produced by Stephanie Phillips, presented by Frequency Podcast Network.